Greetings from Trinity Reformed Baptist Church. Uh, my church is glad to send me here this morning to be with you, and they are praying for you, or probably have prayed for you because we are an hour ahead of you already. Uh, but we be assured of our prayers for you often, uh, not just on this day, but uh, you are part of the churches that we regularly pray for. And so they are glad for me to be here, glad to know of saints of like-minded faith and rejoice in what the, God has been doing here at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church. Uh, I'm sorry that my family was not able to be here this morning. They were very much looking forward to being here and worshiping with you all. Unfortunately, uh, by the providence of God, that was unable to happen. So they are saddened, as am I, that they are not here to worship together with us. I ask that you would now take your copy of God's Word and open to the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. This morning we'll be examining the first verse of the fourth chapter. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of God. Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Let us pray. Great God in heaven, what a joy it is to... <clears throat> come before you in worship, that we have a word that is not from below, has not originated in man, but it has originated from above, and this is your word, and your word reveals to us the glories of your beloved Son, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Lord. We ask that the Spirit of God today would give us eyes to behold all his beauty and majesty, and we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, we have not only a verse to study, but we have a whole method of thinking about the relationship between what we ought to think and how we ought to live. The imperative that Paul gives us here, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, comes in chapter 4. It doesn't come in chapter 1. These are, these are not his first words. He does introduce himself, but even after he introduces himself, these are not his first words. He goes on to talk about our glorious election in Christ Jesus, that eternal decree of God that is not based upon anything that we have done or anything that we would do, but is based upon his free grace to save a people for himself, for his own glory and honor, and to save them in Christ Jesus. And he predestined his people for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to his marvelous and glorious grace. And then in time, God executes that redemption in the work of Jesus Christ. We are forgiven of our sins because Jesus Christ came and assumed to Himself the form of humanity, living a perfect and holy and righteous life and dying a cursed death on the cross, but not remaining under the power of death for any longer than three days when He rose again from the dead and then shortly after ascended into heaven. And God makes known to us this marvelous mystery of His will by the work of the Holy Spirit who is given to us as a seal, as an earnest or a guarantee of our salvation. 
And because of this great work of God, we have an inheritance. This is all what Paul is speaking of earlier in Ephesians chapter 1. And then he desires that the saints in Ephesus would know of this marvelous power of God that is made known to them and is working in them this same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And we needed this power because Christ was raised from the dead, but we were spiritually dead in the trespasses of our sins. We, we walked not in a manner worthy of our calling, but we walked in a manner that was fitting to or in accordance with the wickedness of this world under the power and rule of Satan. And I believe that Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 is drawing a bit of a distinction between the Gentile way of life and the Jewish way of life. And so he's saying that the Gentile way of life is one where they were following the prince and power of the air, but the Jewish way of life is, although it would not be under the prince and power of the air because they would have the law of God, yet among all those who did walk under the prince and power of the air, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest, Jew and Gentile being objects of God's wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, and we rejoice, saved us, saved Jew and saved Gentile, and is doing this glorious and magnificent work, making one new man in Christ Jesus, building a new man, engaging in a new temple work where the Gentiles would be included in part of this and receive with their Jewish brothers every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. No Jew, no Gentile who is in Christ has a different or unique spiritual blessing, all receiving the same blessing, so that, such that there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, male, female, slave, or free. This is the gospel that Paul is preaching, this is the gospel that he is often physically maligned for and thrown in prison for, but he prays that the, those who are in Christ Jesus would come and have access to the same God that he accesses on their behalf and that they would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that they may be filled with the fullness of God. And then he concludes this great prayer at the end of Ephesians chapter 3 and says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now we come to Christian living. This is who God is, this is what God has done, this is what God is doing, and now, Ephesians 4, verse 1, this is how you should live. We live in an activist culture, we live in an impulsive culture that is often very urgent to do without having given much thought to what is or what should be done. That's not the order that the Apostle Paul gives us here. And even in Scripture in places where the imperatives are a little more hurried than they are here in Ephesians chapter 4, where they may come earlier, it is still presupposing 
a whole doctrine that comes before it. And so what we have here this morning is not merely an imperative, but how we ought to think about the relationship between what God has done and how Christians ought to live in light of what God has done. So let's, now that we've looked at the first three chapters of Ephesians in a very much a fly-by manner, let's break apart this text and we'll split it into two parts. And then what we're going to do is we're going to pull a doctrine from this text. And then we're going to apply that doctrine to our lives. So three steps, examining the text, pulling a doctrine from the text, and applying that to our lives. So the text, two parts. Paul gives an exhortation to walk, and then he talks about the manner of walking. So the exhortation to walk. In this exhortation to walk, first we have an exhorter, someone who's giving the exhortation. And the person who is giving the exhortation is the Apostle Paul. I. The I is Paul. The I is the man who is writing this letter to them. The I is the man who has proclaimed this gospel that God is saving both Jew and Gentile and building a magnificent new temple, making one new man. These are the things that Paul has been chased down and imprisoned for. It is this one who is speaking. And he calls himself a prisoner for the Lord. You have to ask yourself when the last time you took advice from a prisoner was. Uh, as, a, as, a, as has been mentioned, I'm from Terre Haute, and as I mentioned earlier this morning, uh, we are well known for our federal security prison, uh, where men like Timothy McVeigh were executed and the Boston bomber was held for a period of time. Um, this is not a place I would go to if I wanted life advice. Unless it was the kind of story that we see in passages like Proverbs 5 and 7 where those who go down with Lady Folly, it's like they're walking down to death. And so it would be a, don't do what these people do. If anything, we, if we got advice from these prisoners, it would be, please tell me everything that you did and what got you to this point so that I can do the exact opposite. Ironically, though, those who are in prison often don't see themselves as heinous as they should. That's not unique for people who are in prison. That's human nature, this side of Adam. But often, those who are in a place such as that or those who are in prison ought to have a certain kind of brokenness that accompanies them, and they often don't. They'll give advice. They'll tell you what should be done. They'll tell you all the things they're going to do when they get out. But we usually ignore that, kind of like the person who says, oh, let me give you marriage advice. I've been married and divorced six, six times. I know how to find the right person. Well, maybe you don't. Maybe the person who knows how to do this right is the person who hasn't gone through some of the sins that you have gone through. We don't often listen to prisoners. But here, we listen to Paul. Because his appeal to us is in some ways an appeal of a righteous sufferer. He's appealing to us as a prisoner, not merely a prisoner who happens to be a Christian, but a one who is a prisoner precisely because he is a Christian. He has suffered reproach for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we ought to listen to him because this is the word of God, because he's an apostle that was appointed and selected by Jesus Christ, but because he is one who has suffered reproach for the gospel, and what a shame it would be for us to be ashamed of this one who is in chains, for it is our very body 
that is in chains with him, the body of Christ. So it's the exhorter is Paul, and the exhorted is initially those in Ephesus, but by extension, us. I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you. He's writing and exhorting believers. He's writing and exhorting those who not only were predestined before the foundation of the world, but those who in time have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Those whose sins have been forgiven. Those who have come to Christ in faith. Believers who have received the preaching of the gospel, the gospel that he is imprisoned for, hearing it and believing in it. This is Paul's audience. So it's not, it's not the broadest audience in the world. He's not giving a command for everyone. He's giving a command for those who are in Christ Jesus. I, I have enjoyed the worship thus far with you this morning, especially the way that the law of God has been used and talked about. We often speak of three different uses of the law of God. The first use is pedagogical. That is, it is, it is teaching us. It reveals the holy character of God and what God expects of those who are made in His image and shows us how we have woefully fallen short of living according to God's righteous, holy standard, which just is Himself, and it drives us to Christ. There's also the civil use of the law, which helps to restrain or hold back evil. And then there is the, the normative use, the third use, which is a guide for righteous living. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing right here. Those who have been saved by grace, now that you have been saved, this is how you ought to live. He tells them that they are to walk. He uses the language of walking, not only here in Ephesians 4.1, but he also does so if you look down in your text in verse 17. In 4.1, he says to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In 4.17, he says no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. In the, the fifth chapter, the second verse, he says walk in love. In the eighth verse of chapter 5, at one time you were in darkness, but now you are but now you are light. Walk as children of the light. The 15th verse. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. The Christian walk is to look different than the former manner of life, which is described in verse 2 of the second chapter. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You used to walk one way, but beloved, now you've been saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here in the first verse of the fourth chapter, the apostle is saying, 
you need to live in a manner consistent with the way that you have been called. You used to walk in sins. Now walk in light. Don't walk like the Gentiles. Walk in love. Walk in wisdom, not folly. Don't walk in the way you used to walk, which was sin. So, that's the exhorter, Paul. The exhorted are the saints in Christ Jesus. And the exhortation is to walk. So that's the exhortation to walk. The second part of the text is the manner of walking. The Apostle Paul says that we are to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So the manner of walking is worthy of our calling. That is that there's a certain fittingness and a dignity and honor to the way that we are supposed to live as Christians precisely because we have been called. In the same way that you would exhort a married spouse not to commit adultery precisely because they are married. Remember your vows. Don't go after and chase that sin. Why? Because you're married to someone. My father used to always tell me when we would leave the house and go go away for overnight, uh, wherever that may have been, he would say, remember who you are and what you are. I never really knew what the what you are part was. Um, the who you are, though, it was, it, it was a Sparks. This was the same thing his, his mother told him. So it was the things that Sparks have said to each other. Remember who you are. When you go out there and you're away from home, remember that you are a, you are a Sparks, and there's an expectation that you live in accordance with who you are. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here. You are a Christian. There's an expectation that the way in which you live has a fittingness to the calling that you have. That there's a certain dignity and honor in the way that you carry yourself because you have such a great calling. So make sure that the way you walk is fitting to your call. There are different kinds of calling. There's a a calling to ministry which the Apostle Paul is one who is called as an apostle. Ministers of the gospel are are called to serve as ministers. But then there's also the calling of salvation. And I think that this is the type of calling that the Apostle Paul is referring referring to here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. He's not referring to a calling as an apostle. He's not referring to the calling of the office of apostle or prophet or evangelist or pastors and teachers as he's later going on to go on and discuss in Ephesians chapter 4. I think he's referring to the calling of salvation. And there's a couple ways that scripture speaks to calling. Go ahead and turn in your copy of God's word to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll look at one of those ways. And as you're turning there, I'll remind you of what is said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 14. Many are called, but few are chosen. And there you see uh, the way that calling and being chosen are distinguished. There is a kind of calling that text in Matthew is communicating that falls on the ears. It comes from the mouth of a man and it lands in the ears of a man, but it is not accompanied by the blessed presence of the Spirit of God where He takes those words and implants them into our soul, giving us new life 
through the preaching of the Word. We must remember that there is a supernatural element to calling. You can put the, the greatest preachers up here with a hearer that is precisely ready to hear words that come from the mouth of man and land in the ears of man, but if it's not accompanied by the Spirit of God, there will be no salvation that is given. So there is a calling that, la- that comes from the mouth and lands on the ear, but never makes it to the soul. That's how calling is talked about in Matthew chapter 22, but it's talked about a little bit differently by Paul in 1 Corinthians 22, uh, 1, 22 through 24. Not that it's contradictory, he's speaking about it from different respects. So look at uh, 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. So there's that, there's that preaching the words that are coming out of the mouth and landing in the ears of Jews, landing in the ears of Greeks, and yet to them, as it lands in their ears, what does it sound like? It sounds like stumbling blocks and folly. But to those who are called, that is that there's this subset within the Jews and Gentiles that he has just spoken of in verse 22, that hear the preaching of the word, but not only hear the preaching of the word, but are called by the Spirit of God unto salvation, Paul says, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So there is an internal call that's different than the external call. There's the external call that is the human operation where the words are spoken and heard. There's the internal call, which is the work of the Spirit, whereby he takes that preaching and makes it effectual unto salvation. This is what the Apostle Paul refers to in in Romans, I apologize, Romans 8. 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's an important text because here we see Paul connecting predestination and calling. Predestined being the eternal act of God to set aside some for salvation. Calling being that work of God in time whereby he gets those whom he predestined. So they're living as unbelievers, but they've been predestined in Christ. And the work of the Spirit of God pulls these individuals and woos them and draws them in time. And that is calling. So just a helpful way. How do I know if I've been predestined? Well, have you been called? How do I know if I've been called? Do you have faith in Christ? I do. Then you've been called. And if you've been called, it's because you were predestined. We ought not to look back into our predestination. We ought to look at our calling. And when we see our calling, we know that we have been predestined. And so that is what the Apostle Paul is referring to here. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's the execution of the decree of election in time. It's the foundation of of our salvation, such that we can rightly say it has happened. How do I know I'm saved? Because I've been called. How do I know I've been called? I believe in Christ. So, in effect, what the Apostle Paul is saying to those in Ephesus and to us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, is you have been called by God unto salvation. Live as one who has been called unto salvation. That's our text. Our doctrine is this. Christian conduct conforms to Christian calling. Christian conduct conforms to Christian calling. 
that is, the way that we ought to live, conforms to the fact that we have been called and conforms to what we have been called to, which is salvation. This is how we are to think about the relationship between being saved and doing good works. We have been saved by grace apart from works, and yet we also are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we would walk in them. So we, we, we ought not to say that Christian conduct confers Christian calling. That would be a bad way to think about it. If I live in a certain way and I conduct myself in a Christianly manner, then I will be called. Now, most people wouldn't necessarily put it that way, but they would connect it to, then I will be saved. If I conduct myself accordingly, then I will be called, or then I will be saved. That's not the flow of Paul's argument, nor is it in, in all of Ephesians, nor is it consistent with the words here. You have been called, therefore live in a manner worthy of your calling, not to attain your calling. And we praise the Lord that <laughs> that's not what he's saying for several reasons. And the first is that we could never walk aright. We were walking in sin. How could we get to a spot where we walked in such a way that conferred Christian calling upon us? We cannot. We were dead in the trespasses of our sin. Further, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. We are saved not on the basis of our walking. We are saved on the basis of how Christ walked in His perfect righteousness in the life that He lived. So there is no way that conduct can confer Christian calling. Further, the whole argument of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, is that calling precedes conduct. We have been called, and now our conduct follows from our calling. It is not something that is a prerequisite to our calling. It's not walk a certain way and then you will be called. It's you have been called, now walk a certain way. This is exactly what he's saying in Ephesians 2. All our good works flow from the fact that we have been saved by grace. And this is just the whole method of Ephesians, which is first Christian faith and what God has done, then Christian practice in light of what God has done. That's the whole flow of the book. It's hinging right here, which is why this is such a helpful verse for us to understand what is the relationship between salvation and good works. First, it's God calls us. Then we seek to have our conduct conform to our Christian calling. So we, we don't want to say that Christian conduct confers Christian calling. We also don't want to say that Christian calling cancels conduct. Because you have been called, you can live now however you want. You have been called. Therefore, walk like the Gentiles walk. No, that's, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is helping us walk a helpful line here that enables us to avoid legalism, earning and gaining our salvation by conduct and antinomianism, being against the law of God, which would say, you've been saved. It does not matter how you live. As if we can separate and treat and, and, put, and place far apart our justification and our sanctification. We can have one without the other. 
No, Christian calling doesn't cancel Christian conduct. That's the rest of Paul's argument in Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 5, and Ephesians chapter 6 mitigates against that. You've been saved, so husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church. You've been saved. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church does to Christ. Because you have been called unto salvation, beloved, there is an expectation that you will live in a manner that is worthy of this great calling that God has called you with. This is testified to in other places in Scripture, such as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7. Also, the Apostle Paul where he writes these words. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. We've not been called and saved from that terrible and heinous life of sin for the purpose of more sin. We've been called so that we can walk in a manner consistent with our calling, which is contrary to the way we used to walk. And that's what we needed to be saved from. You've been saved from that. So now live in light of your great salvation. Peter, likewise, writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, these words. But as He who called you is holy, the One who called you is a holy God. So the reasoning that Peter brings to bear is this. Be holy, in all your conduct, the God who called you is holy, therefore be holy. You've been planted as an apple tree. Produce apples. Not produce apples to become an apple tree. It's not you were planted, no one cares about the fruit that you're going to produce. No, you're an apple tree, bear apples. You're a Christian. Walk as a Christian. We neither separate nor confuse the relationship between justification and sanctification. To be justified is to be declared righteous and holy before God. To be sanctified is to have the inward conformity of our lives by the grace of God into holiness. We distinguish them and say justification is that legal declaration that does not consider the fact that we have become holy, but God sees us as holy because of Christ's righteousness. Sanctification is that work of God where we actually become holy and righteous. So we don't separate these two out as if you can have justification without sanctification or sanctification without justification. Nor do we confuse them together. Rather, we distinguish and say they concern different things. One is a legal declaration that's based upon the finished work of Christ. And one is an actual transformation. And both are dependent upon the grace of God. So the point of this text, or a doctrine in this text, is that Christian conduct conforms to Christian calling. We don't want to say that conduct confers Christian calling, and we don't want to say that Christian calling cancels conduct. This just is the way that Scripture speaks about walking. We, we read from Matthew chapter 9, verse 5, and what does Jesus declare? Sons, your sins are forgiven, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, 
take up your bed and walk. Our walking in Christ is a sign that the Son of Man has looked at us and has given us that assurance of pardon, has said you are forgiven, and because you have been forgiven of your sins, now walk. Walking in Scripture is a sign of vitality. It's a sign of life that's contrary to death. You have the story of the young girl in Mark chapter 5 being raised from the dead. And what does it say she did after she was raised from the dead? She got up and walked. She didn't walk to get raised. She didn't stay there dead and motionless. Both of these instances, you have God acting. And upon God acting on behalf of these sinners, what follows is walking those who were lame because of their sin, have been raised and are able to walk by the grace of God. Some uses of this doctrine. First, would be to repent of self-righteousness. And this would be specifically for those that would fall outside the bounds of Paul's exhortation the saints in Ephesus that have been called. There are those who have not at this time been called of God. Whether they will be or not, we don't know. But who seek to walk in such a manner that they can say, ah, here is my righteousness. Here is my conduct. Now grant me entrance into your kingdom, Lord. And that is not the way salvation works. It is not based upon what we have done. It is based upon what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. To think that we can come to God and bring our conduct is, is, is to think that we can come and bring our filthy rags and trade them for some type of good. And often we go, well, hang on, hang on, but what, what if I have more filthy rags? Hear me out. I got a whole truckload of filthy rags. All you're doing is increasing the stank. That's all, that's all you're doing with your filthy rags. More of them does not help you. More of that which is heinous and grotesque will not appease the righteous and holy God. So what is one to do? One is to recognize that this form of self-righteousness, seeking to live in such a way that Christian calling can be conferred upon you, is a form of sin that will also heap damnation upon one's own head. And they are to cry out and recognize that Christ and Christ alone is their righteousness, and they can only be saved on account of Him. So that's the first use. The second would be this, consider your calling. This is the language borrowed from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Consider your calling, brethren. If you are told by the Apostle Paul to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, and he's telling you this as he's writing this, he's, he, he is chained and he is bound and he is imprisoned and he is saying, live in accordance with the calling which you have been called. Then, beloved, we ought to consider our calling. And we can do that by considering the God of our calling. As we read about in 1 Peter 1, verse 15, who is the one who called us? It is the holy, holy, holy God who has called us. That, beloved, should give us incentive to live in holiness. The one who is perfect righteousness. The one who is the very standard of righteousness and holiness is the one 
who has called us. And if that's the case, then we ought to strive to live holy as our God is holy. But we ought not just consider our God who is holy. We ought to consider the gospel. Philippians 1, 27, Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. When we look at the gospel, we see nothing but purity. The only time we see impurity is when we look at those for whom the gospel is for, those who have been saved. As we, as we consider the unfolding of the gospel, everything from the holy plan of God to save a wretched people and to do so in such a glorious manner and chaste way, Nothing, as we read about the unfolding of the gospel in the history of redemption, is ungodly or unholy, as if God would use wicked, men's to, wicked ends to bring about, sorry, wicked means to bring about a good end. That's not what we see in Scripture. We have the Virgin Mary, and in her, this holy thing is wrought in her by the Spirit of God. And this one who comes forth, although he's accused of being a sinner, although he's accused of being illegitimate, although he's accused as being someone who is not worthy of following, as, even though he's accused of being a lawbreaker, we find all those charges wanting. We find them all lacking. We don't find that in David. We don't find that in Abraham. We don't find that in Noah. We don't find that in ourselves. We don't find it in Paul. We find that in Christ and Christ alone. Every one of these men would happily receive the accusations that have been levied against them, for many of them are just true. But none stick against Christ. But it's not just the contents of the gospel. It's the way that the gospel is preached to us. It's not some false or filthy religion that's proclaimed to us in underhanded manners and deceitful schemes and tricks. It's not something that's given to us by snake oil salesmen. And it's not something given to us in a manner that's consistent with a scam. We have a holy gospel that has come to us in a holy manner. So we ought to consider the God of our calling. We ought to consider the gospel, both its contents and the way it came to us. But we ought, uh, also ought to consider the great end. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, the apostle writes, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. I think that what this is referring to is that as we come to our state of glorification, we appear before God as those who are holy and blameless, made to be in such a way that we will never sin again. That's not the reason why we're chosen, but that is to what we are chosen, that we would be before God holy 
and blameless, not only because we've been declared legally righteous on account of what Christ has done, but that the Spirit of God takes all that is Christ's and gives it to us, such that as Christ is glorified and perfect now, beloved, that is where the gospel leads us to. We have to remember that the gospel is the means that God uses to bring us to the end, which is conformity to the holy God. So first was repent of your self-righteousness. Second, consider your calling. Third, plead the power of God as you walk. Plead the power of God as you walk. We're so thankful that this text follows on the heels of a great prayer where the apostle says now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to his power that works within us. What great hope for the Christian is in that prayer. Because I think if we considered our week, considered maybe even just this morning, it may be very apparent to us that we have not walked in a manner worthy of our calling. Sometimes our sins face us and seem insurmountable such that we can blame it just on who we are or our upbringing. And yet the apostle reminds us that this God to whom we pray is not just able to do more. He's able to do far more. He's able to do far more abundantly. And he's able to do far more abundantly, not just beyond what you could ask, but anything that you could possibly conceive. What great hope there is for us in Christian sanctification, that the power of God is working in us to help us and enable us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Fourth and finally, pursue ordinary Christian living. Pursue ordinary Christian living. We're just called to walk. It's, it's one of the most basic activities in the world. Almost every single person can do it. Such that if we see someone not walking, we automatically assume something is probably seriously wrong with this person because of their age or because of an injury or they're so young that they haven't learned yet. But pretty much everyone else, and that's a lot of people, walk. And we, even those young ones, we expect them to learn how to grow and to walk. It's a very normal activity for the human being. We are those who stand and walk upright. That's who we are. This is the analogy that Paul uses. The Christian life has a certain normalcy to it. It has a certain ordinary flavor to it. There's going to be nothing spectacular that the Apostle Paul is going to call us to in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Hey, walk worthy of your calling. Hey, don't walk like the Gentiles walk. Hey, folly, don't walk in that. Love, walk in that. Love your husband. Love your wife. Treat those underneath you well. Treat those who are over you well. Make sure you honor the fifth commandment and seek to live to the glory of God. It's pretty basic from here on out. It's pretty basic. Unfortunately, it's kind of like common sense. It ought to be common, but you don't see it very often, right? Christian calling, or Christian conduct, I'm sorry, is, is somewhat ordinary and basic. And yet we find very few people who excel at just some of the basic things that the Apostle Paul is going to lay out for us in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. 
So we ought to, we ought to strive to excel in these things that the apostle has given us, because this is just ordinary walking. So pursue, beloved, ordinary Christian living. We used to walk in a manner that was contrary to God's way, but now He has called us. So now we ought to stand upright as those who have been healed from being lame. Stand as opposed to those who were laying because they were dead. We've been forgiven. Walk as those who have been forgiven. So may God, who has given us new life in Christ, cause us to walk and leap and praise His name. Let us pray. Great God in heaven, we praise you for having saved us from a way of walking that was ungodly, a way of walking that was in sin. You have saved us to walk in righteousness. You did not save us because we were walking righteously, nor did you save us and thank you for not just leaving us in the filth in which we previously walked. May we not sin so that grace can abound, but Father, may we recognize that you, a holy God, has called us by means of a holy gospel which centers around your Son. And that calling has come to us by the Spirit who is holy. So we ask, Lord, that you would make us to walk in holiness on account of what your Son has done for us. May the Spirit of God take all that the Son did and lived and how He is now and bring that to our lives that we may walk uprightly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.